So it's John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My mother has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I was in France on holiday uh, with my family. And on the last day of our holiday, we had a big treat. We went to uh, a water park. It was the Wallaby Aqua Park near Argen in the south of France. Uh, and I'm quite up for a bit of an adrenaline rush. I love a roller coaster uh, and I love a water park. And this water park had this particular slide uh, that you can see on the screen behind me. It is called the tornado. Okay, it's unlike any other slide. It's not just a little loopy, loopy, tubey thing. It's got that huge cone thing that you can see on the screen there. Now, if you've ever been to any sort of theme park, uh, a water park or a normal theme park, you know, you will know uh, that the makers of the theme park have this incredible way of taking you on a journey towards the entrance of the ride that you're going on. It's all about building up excitement. It's all about building up the expectation of what lies ahead. And the journey towards the entrance of the tornado was just like that. It was all about building up the sense of expectation towards this incredible water slide you were going to go on. It was about seven levels. The staircase took you up about seven levels. And each time you turned a corner, you get a, like a, a sneak preview of a different part of the ride. So at one point, I turned the corner and was encountered by this about 10 meter virtual uh, virtually vertical drop and all I could hear at that point was people screaming inside this tube uh, and I was getting a little bit worried and I was saying to my children I'm not sure I want to go on this and they're like oh come on mum it'll be fine Don't be such a lightweight uh, and then you turned another corner and you saw people literally being spewed out of this vertical uh, tube at about 20 miles an hour and they were shooting up the side of that big it can 
only be described as a sort of conical cone thing. And basically, you shoot at the side uh, of one half the cone, and then you go up the other, and you basically keep going until you spew out the bottom. And as I wound my way up uh, this staircase, the sort of sense of expectation, the sense of sort of nervous excitement was growing until I got to the top. And I have to say, I was feeling a bit sick by the time I got to the top, but I was also just really excited and really expectant at, at the thrill, the excitement I was going to have. And so we got in this like huge yellow thing. There was four of us in there. And I literally thought I was going to die. I was like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And we shot down this uh, tube and it all lasted about 10 seconds. And it was amazing. And we did it about 10 times because it was so brilliant. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. But there's something, isn't there, about that sense of expectancy. When you're about to do something new that you've never done before, that sort of sense of standing on the edge of something new, that sense of expectancy. At the moment, I can't help but think that as a church, we're standing on the edge of something new. Uh, last autumn uh, at P's and G's, we felt that God was saying to us uh, that he was turning us over, that he was plowing us up, ready for planting new seed and a new harvest that was to come. And we've been through this season over the last year or so of just being turned over and being plowed up. But now we're entering a new season and I hope you, like me, are expectant, expectant what God is going to do in our, our lives and the life of this church here. This week, I've been reading over this passage uh, that Neil read to us from John chapter 2. I've been reading over it and pondering it and praying over it. And three things struck me about this encounter with Jesus that we read in John chapter 2. Firstly, there is a sense of expectancy in this encounter. Secondly, what happens in this miracle shows the extravagance of God. And thirdly, all that leads to transformation. Expectancy, extravagance, and transformation, the three things that we're going to look at this morning. But before we go any further, I want us to stop and I want us to pray. And I want us to just be quiet. And in the quiet, why don't you just come before God and bring your expectancy to God? We're standing on the edge of something new. What does God want to say to you this morning as we look at this passage together? Let's just be quiet for a moment. Loving God, here we are, we're just a bunch of people that are gathered in this building together from different places, from different lives, but thank you that you know each one of us and love each one of us. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us and encourage us as we look at this passage, and that you give us a sense of expectancy. 
come and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, expectancy. John records in the gospel uh, that Jesus and his friends uh, are at a wedding celebration. Uh, And at weddings, there is always a sense of expectancy, isn't there? we sort of enter the church and we think, oh, I wonder what the decoration's going to be like inside the church. Then you get in there and you stand there waiting and there's this great sense of expectancy. What will the bride be wearing? What will she look like? How beautiful will she look? Nobody's really bothered about the groom, are they? Couldn't care less what the groom's... In fact, I, when I was in holiday in France, I missed uh, Josh Gilbert, our student alpha uh, worker, and Laura's wedding. I was really sad to miss it. And I was sat there on the day of their wedding just so excited. I was waiting for people to post pictures of Laura on Facebook. I couldn't care less what Josh looked like. I love Josh, but I really didn't care. I knew he'd be wearing a kilt, but I was expectant about what Laura would look like. She looked amazing. We stand there in the wedding. We think, what's the music going to be like? What are they going to choose? If you're like me, you want to hear what the preacher's going to talk about. And then you go to the reception and you're excited about whether you're going to be given champagne or Prosecco uh, when you go into the wedding reception. Then you think, what food are we going to have and what are we going to do later on it? What the speech is going to be like? There's a whole sense of expectancy around a wedding. And I'm sure that there would have been this sort of similar sense of expectancy at this wedding uh, that Jesus and his disciples find themselves in. But I also think there's a whole other layer of expectancy going on in this wedding. And that's because Jesus is there. At some point during this wedding celebration, the wine runs out. Now, this is a massively serious problem because uh, at this time, uh, the wine running out would have brought huge shame upon the family of the bridegroom. It's the bridegroom's family's job to make sure there's enough wine uh, to keep everybody happy uh, for the three, four, five days of the wedding celebration. And so if the wine ran out, it was a serious business. Uh, Lawsuits were brought against the families of bridegrooms uh, if the wine had run out at uh, at their wedding. But faced with this situation, we see Mary doing something. She takes matters into her own hands and she heads over to Jesus. And she heads up to Jesus and she goes, there's no more wine. There's no more wine. It's like she's expecting Jesus to do something. She's not just telling him, informing him, there is no more wine. She's going, Jesus, there's no more wine. We sort of need you to do something here in this situation. I don't know how Mary knows there's no more wine. I sort of imagine she's picked up a little clay cup and she's gone over to the place where the wine is and she's dipped her cup in to top it up and finds out there's no more wine. Or maybe uh, she's heard people talking, there's gossip going on. Have you heard? They have run out of wine. Can you believe it? But she takes matters into her own hands and she goes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, there's no more wine. She expects him to do something. When we present our requests, we call them prayers, to Jesus, do we have that same sense of expectancy that we hear that we see in Mary, that actually Jesus will do something, will change the situation? 
If you were in church last Sunday morning, uh, you will have heard Paul's brilliant challenge to us to step out, to ask God to put on your heart somebody to invite along to church, to come and see, to come and see. And last Sunday morning, uh, God put on my heart Cleo. Now, Cleo is my hairdresser. And, uh, and I knew that I was having my hair cut on Friday. Thanks. And, um, and so I've been praying for her all week. I've been praying for Cleo all week. And so I went to the hairdressers with a real sense of expectancy. Now, Cleo and I often have conversations about church uh, because she is fascinated by the fact that I'm a vicar in, a, in the church across the road from where she lives. She works on that place there. And, um, and she's really fascinated. She often asks questions about, like, what do I do and what happens? And I tell her um, about church and what P's and G's is like, and it blows her mind. She cannot get her head around uh, the fact that this church I'm describing is like the church that she went to when she was five to her granddad's funeral or the last time it was that she was in church. And so we had that sort of conversation on Friday, but I was expectant that God would move that conversation on in another way. And so uh, when the opportunity came, as ever, I sort of leapt in and said, Cleo, you know, I'm always saying this, but why don't you come to church on Sunday? And, and she made some excuse, and she didn't come. I even had in my bag this Try Praying booklet. Um, I'm sure you've seen these around. We have them on our, our desk at the back. These are brilliant ways uh, to share your faith with somebody because actually um, the statistics tell us that about 10 million people in the UK pray. There are not 10 million people in our church, uh, on, in our church, in the church on a Sunday. But these are great. If Cleo had just expressed some interest, I could have said, well, why don't you go and and read this. It's a great thing to hand to people. Do grab uh, one or two from the back information point on your way out today. But I offered Cleo to come and see, and she didn't. And I was a bit gutted, to be honest. I was like, oh, come on, God. I've been praying for Cleo all week. I've been praying for her before that as well, but it was a, just a good reminder. But actually, I had to sort of take myself back and say, and say to myself, God's timing is perfect. God knows Cleo. And actually, all my job is, is to be faithful to God and faithful to Cleo and to just keep praying for her. And God knows, God knows when the timing is right. And we, as we do these sorts of things, our faith expands. We become more expectant as we live our lives in our workplaces, in our communities, in our families, uh, with the people that we spend our lives with, that God will answer our prayers, that God will move and change things. So Mary presents her request to Jesus, expecting that he has the power to change this situation. And how does he respond? He turns to her and says, dear woman, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Does Jesus really believe that his time has not yet come, that it's not time for him to start doing miraculous things? Or is he like testing her? Is he testing her belief or his, her faith? I don't know. I think there's something about this interaction between Jesus and Mary. I think Jesus says this with like a little twinkle in his eye because he knows his time has come. And I think it's more like, 
Dear woman, why do you involve me? You know my time has not yet come. You know, because uh, he actually knows exactly what he's going to do. She expects Jesus to do something. She doesn't know what, but she trusts that Jesus has the power to change the situation that they're in. And that's when the action really starts, isn't it? Uh, there are six stone water jars over in the, the corner. They're huge things. They're not like little jars uh, like we imagine, but they're huge water jars. They were used uh, for ceremonial washing uh, that the Jews had to do uh, to, to comply with the law, the old law. Uh, and so Jesus says to the servants, go and take those water jars uh, and fill them to the brim. Fill them there to the brim. And then take what's in them to the master of the banquet. And then the master of the banquet tastes, tastes it. And the water is turned into wine. And it's incredible. It's incredible wine. And there are 908 bottles of that wine. That, that wedding is just going to go off with a bang, isn't it? 908 bottles of the most incredible wine. And the whole thing is completely amazing. It just shouts of the generosity. It shouts of the extravagance. It shouts of the abundance of God. Jesus doesn't like provide a couple of bottles of Liebfrau mulch until somebody gets down to the off license to get some proper wine. No, he provides vast quantities of the best wine. The best wine. God is extravagant. He's extravagant in the way that he provides uh, for his children, in the way that he answers the requests of those he loves. He's, he's not stingy, but he's lavish in the way that he responds to us. I was reading this week about Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't usually. It's just that my 14-year-old son talks to me all the time about different footballers. And so, you know, I've got to get down with the kids, know what's going on. Anyway, and um, he uh, is, has moved to Juventus. And he's being paid £500,000 a week. I mean, that just blows my mind. I can't get my head around that sort of money uh, being given to one person in a week. But I expect that like many people in his position, he wants to lavish good things on his friends, on his family. He wants to buy them cars and houses. And he's probably going to spend quite a lot of money on some really great accountants as well to avoid the taxes that he should probably be paying. Um, but it made me think, you know, who of us wouldn't do that? If we had that sort of money, if we had everything at our disposal, who of us wouldn't want to lavish good things on those that we love? And as the pinnacle of God's creation, we are loved by him far more than we can ever ask or imagine, far more than any human love can ever exhibit. So we can be sure that God in his love and in his extravagance and in his generosity wants to give us good things. And that is seen most powerfully and incredibly in the way that he sent Jesus so that each one of us can meet with God and have that relationship with him. Back to our miracle in John 2. Did you notice that when Jesus tells the servants to fill up those water jars, he asks them to fill up the jars to the brim. 
Now, they could have nipped off at that moment and taken these water jars and thought, they're flipping heavy already. If I fill them to the brim, I'm not hardly going to be able to move them back into this banquet. You know, let's just fill them about two-thirds full. Nobody will notice. But they know that Jesus has said to them, fill these water jars to the brim. And so they act obediently. They do what Jesus tells them. They play their part and they fill the water to the brim. And this whole encounter here uh, with Jesus reminds me of an encounter that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 4. It might be one that's familiar to lots of us here. We find a, a widow and uh, she comes and meets with the prophet Elisha. And we find out that this woman's husband uh, has left her with some debt. And uh, she explains to Elijah that her husband's creditors want to come and take her two sons um, away as their slaves to pay off the debt in exchange for the debt. Elijah says, what have you got? And she says, well, apart from my sons, the only thing that I have is a tiny bit of oil in a jar. That's the only thing that I've got left. And Elijah turns to the woman and he says, right, I want you to go around to all your neighbors and I want you to ask uh, for jars. But he says this, don't ask for a few. Go to your neighbors and ask for jars, but don't ask for a few, implying ask for a lot. You're going to need a lot. Elisha knows God. And Elisha knows that God, uh, God's generosity is immense. He knows that God is an extravagant God. And he knows that God is extravagant in his mercy and his love and his compassion towards this woman. And so the woman and her sons go around to their neighbors and they collect together uh, loads of jars, loads of stone jars. And they take them into their house and they get the, the, the jar with the little bit of oil that they have left. It's all that they have left. And they pour the oil that they have into the first jar and it fills it to the brim. They put it to one side and the oil is still flowing. And so they get the next jar in and they fill that one up and the oil is still flowing and they keep going until every single jar that they've borrowed from their neighbors is full to the brim. And then they're able to go off and sell that wine and pay off their creditors. But did you notice that they had enough wine the wine, uh, the wine, the oil corresponded to the number of jars that they had. God's extravagant provision corresponded exactly to the faith of the widow. If they'd just got one jar, God would have provided one jar of oil. Think about that for a moment. If they'd just got one jar, God would have just provided one jar of oil. So do we need to expand our horizons of what God can and will do in order to experience the extravagance of God? I spent years getting irritated by church. It's a bit bad, isn't it, when I'm a vicar? But I did. All sorts of things used to irritate me. I used to come to church going, oh my goodness, what's the band going to be like today, or the music group, or whatever it was. Uh, when, this was before I was here, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's perfect. Um, 
Or, you know, like, oh, what songs are we going to sing today? How many times are we going to sing them through? Uh, you know, and I bet they haven't got a bass or a drummer. And all that. And then the preacher used to happen, uh, get up, and I'd be like, you know, if only they preached better, if only they preached more biblically, if only they were uh, more sort of filled with the Spirit, if only they applied what they said more. Uh, and I found myself being sort of coming with all this rubbish to church. And then about five or six years ago, I sort of had a little chat with myself. And I had to sort of say to myself, actually, this is not the church's problem. And this is not God's problem, Libby. This is actually your problem. And what I did was I gave all that to God. And I sort of expanded my expectation of what God would do at church and through church And so rather than coming, going, oh, you know, show me what you can do, and I'll pick holes in it. Actually, it was coming to God and saying, okay, God, meet with me in this service. Come and meet with me through the worship. Meet with us as a community. Fill us up and send us out in the power of your spirit through what you're going to do at church today. And guess what? Since then, I have met with God in a new way since I changed my expectations. Since I started coming to church, ready to receive from the extravagance of God. Do you and I need to uh, change our expectations of God when we come to church? Or maybe to your connect group. Do you need to deal with whatever is hindering your encounter with God? And what do you expect God to do in your workplace or where you spend your days, I wonder? Do do you pray about the people that you're going to meet uh, when you're traveling to the place you spend most of your days or where you get up in the morning and you think, oh, I'm going to be going to that baby and toddler group today uh, with my small child. God, give me an opportunity to encounter somebody. God, I expect you to open the way and show the people that I'm going to meet the extravagance of your love and mercy today. Do we expect God to bring transformation every day? And what do we expect of Jesus? So the last thing. We expect Jesus to do nothing less than bring transformation. We expect Jesus to bring complete transformation. Jesus transformed these huge jars full of water into huge jars full of really nice wine. You know, he takes water, which was one of the symbols of the old covenant uh, with the people of Israel, and he transforms that water into wine. And I know which one I'd rather have. Um, And it's no accident either that this is Jesus' first miracle, because Jesus is pointing out that God has taken the old, the old covenant, the old way of doing things, the old law, and is about to bring in something new in Jesus Make a permanent, lasting change as Jesus brings the kingdom of God on earth. And did you notice, I love this bit, that actually uh, in John chapter 2, right at the beginning, uh, John writes on the third day. Previously, he's written on the second day and on the first, first day, and he's told us what's happened on those days. But just at the beginning of this, John writes on the third day, on the third day. Because what happens on the third day? On the third day, transformation happens. 
The third day is resurrection day. The third day is new life day. On the third day, God breathes new life into things. There's wholeness, there's restoration on the third day. And Jesus came, and he came to bring uh, new things. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us that Christ is simply in the business of making all things new. Uh, It says, 2 Corinthians 5 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This is what Jesus is in the business of doing, bringing transformation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus comes and bestows us with grace. He lavishes us with love. He fills us with his spirit. And in that moment when uh, Jesus turns water into wine, it's like the heavens are open. And the transforming God comes and it's like heaven and earth meet. It's like heaven breaks into time. Heaven breaks into the earth in a new way. And it happens time and time again through the Gospels. Everywhere we see Jesus go. Every time he meets somebody, transformation happens. The old goes and the new comes. He takes a little boy's picnic and he transforms it into a banquet for 5,000 people. He takes a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years and is outcast from her community, and he restores her and transforms her whole life. He takes somebody who is ill and transforms them into health. He takes somebody who is broken and restores them to wholeness. He takes somebody who is dead and brings them back to life. This is what Jesus is in the business of doing. He takes the old and he brings it into something new. So what is Jesus saying to you and I this morning? What is he saying to us about our expectations of him? What is he saying to us about how much he loves us and the extravagant way that he loves us and loves the world that that he has made? And what is Jesus saying to you and I today about the way that he wants to transform us, to make all things new? The old has gone, the new has come. Just as the band comes up, should we stand together and we're going to pray.